Welcome everyone. I'm Vicki Vasiliga, Director of the Section of Clinical Specialists and Scientists here at ASHP. And thanks for tuning in for this episode on COVID-19. COVID-19 has presented many clinical, operational, and educational challenges over the past years. With that in mind, ASHP is sharing insights and lessons learned presented by your peers from the 2021 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting so that you can incorporate these lessons learned into your practice as we all do our part in caring for our patients. Well, thank you for the ability to share some of my thoughts about the anticoagulation component of COVID-19, especially our focus is going to be on the critically ill, but we have to look at some of the data in other populations to fully understand it. I have taken care of these patients, including a vast number of patients on ECMO, so it is quite a diverse group. And there's a lot of issues to think about when we make these decisions. I didn't really find any one patient, any one group of patient all being the same. There's always some unique component. So how do we make these decisions? And that's when I'm going to spend some time dwelling through what we do know and some of the skills maybe you might use to make your decisions in maximizing their therapy. So our first self-assessment question is, which statement is true in hospitalized COVID patients? One, Anti-10A oral anticoagulants are preferred for thromboprophylaxis. Two, the APTT is preferred over measuring anti-10A activity for the level of heparin anticoagulation. Three, enoxaparin prophylaxis dose in the ICU should be 40 milligrams subcutaneously daily for all patients. Four, independent factors may be present in COVID patients leading to misleading INR, APTT, or anti-10A activity results. And we'll go over these at the end of the program. The second question is, which statement would not be considered as a best practice in the ICU COVID patient? One, all injections and measurements should be coordinated to be done as few times per day as possible. Two, anticoagulation management decisions should be based solely on the randomized clinical trials and their recommendations. Three, Anticoagulation regimen decisions should assess all risks for thrombosis and bleeding. Or four, when using treatment doses, for example, enoxaparin one milligram per kilogram subcutaneously twice daily for prophylaxis, documentation should clearly describe why this dose was chosen. So let's work at some of the concepts here. So one of the things that Paul had outlined is these time courses in which we manage COVID from the person who's an outpatient the person who's getting admitted to the hospital, the person who's going into the ICU, going out of the ICU and being discharged from the hospital, and what are some of the long-term manifestations. Typically for the thrombosis or the coagulopathy component of it, you have the initial infection, but it's when the cytokine storm starts revving up, isn't it? We start seeing the coagulopathy occur. And sometimes you can get the infection course where the oxygenation sats have improved. They're fine. They're breathing on room air. There's no signs of any problems. And we have obviously signals or case reports of patients who are leaving the hospital and subsequently dying from massive pulmonary embolisms in the COVID recovery period. But these rates are variable depending on the, the setting and how the screening was done. For example, some rates of VTE are as low as 2% and the highest being at 69%. But in that study, they actually did intensive screening looking for thrombosis and wasn't necessarily based on clinical symptoms of a thromboembolic event. 
And some of these are also difficult to measure. I can recall having patients come in with massive MIs, no venous thromboembolic disease, but arterial disease. And then we look at the coronaries, and there's just multiple locations of clot in the LCA, or left descending coronary artery, that I just haven't seen very much in practice. And these people obviously have a severe MI, STEMIs, and some of them died. And it's mind-boggling, and actually it's spoken to other expert physicians across the world, including the Cleveland Clinic, for example, that they're seeing this as well. So there's still more that we don't fully understand about this coagulopathy and how the thrombosis manifests itself. But I think you have to be suspicious of both venous and arterial thromboembolic situations. So when you look at the initial observation, there is trans-favoring increased mortalities when the D-dimers were greater than two times the upper limit of normal, which typically is around 0.5 mics per mil. There tended to be a statistically significant increase in mortality if the D-dimers were greater than six. And the incidence of VTE was higher in patients receiving prophylactic anticoagulation and therapeutic anticoagulation in the intensive care units. Therapeutic anoxaparin seemed to improve gas exchange and decrease the need for mechanical ventilation, and there was no signal of harm when using the heparin-related products. But we shall always have to be cautious when looking at D-dimer values because they should not be used as a sole factor in making your decisions on anticoagulation therapy in patients with COVID-19. And I have had patients with D-dimer levels of 50,000, and we just don't know when they get so high what you do with that. Plus, we have to remember that there's breakdown in the assay when you get into such realms of numbers. But it's also something that we do trend to follow to see how the patient is responding, I would call a soft marker for understanding whether the coagulopathy is as virulent as possible, but there's really not a lot of data supporting how to make therapeutic decisions in changing anticoagulation regimens based on the dropping D-dimer levels, except for when you get closer to the time of discharge, when you combine it with oxygenation and other factors and such in making these decisions. Now, we're also facing new strains, the Delta variant and other variants that are out there. And how does this affect things? Uh, Just as Paul or Dr. Shemita pointed out, that even the thrombotic or the immune modulators that are involved in this process seem to change. And we don't know how this fully manifests itself with additional strains. So these are unknown areas. So most of our data will come with the initial COVID strain and not necessarily this newer strain. And we'll learn this as time goes by. But the initial observations, and then there were small series, multi-center retrospective, and then some randomized controlled trials. And then hopefully we'll get guideline statements and guidelines in the future. But really, right now we have guidance statements because just within the last few months, some of the randomized controlled trials have finally been published. And you need those to really have strict or more solid guideline. And otherwise, when you're just dealing with these smaller series and such, you're really ending up with what I call truly a guideline, not a guideline, but a guidance statement from the experts based on what we do now. So when you deal with recognition and management decisions, sometimes we have to keep in mind that we have to assess the patient's risk for bleeding or thrombosis. Patients come in to the hospital, not just for COVID. Sometimes there's other medical conditions that you have to pay attention to, need for procedures. Actually, we're learning how to do some of these procedures we used to do in the operating room or in a more controlled environments. We're actually doing these procedures at the bedside in the ICU because it's safer to do so there and all the restrictions for spreading the infection and uh, patient care room and, and such. It's becoming something that surgeons are more likely to do it in the patient's room instead of the OR. So some things are changing, but then some of the procedures and such may have different risks for bleeding or thrombosis compared to what we do in our normal situation. So we have to keep that in mind in these decisions. We have to think about this short-term and long-term. 
you have to consider both. What you do starts a process, and we have to see it through to the end of the process. So you just can't say, okay, they're in my ICU. I'm going to take care of them while they're in my ICU. And then when they're leaving, well, that's someone else's problem. Well, some of the decisions you made in the ICU may carry over to the point of even post-discharge. So it's important to have clear communication and understand where you're going for the spectrum of the management and not just look at it from a day-to-day, but you have to look at it both day-to-day or moment-to-moment to also what are the long-term needs that we need to do and have that figured out. Sometimes we have to make decisions or do things to set it up so decisions later on can be made with an understanding of the patient's situation. And also, it may depend on the stage of the illness. There's various phases in which we would use different therapies for these patients, as the other two presenters clearly pointed out. And it's also uh, something we have to keep in mind with the anticoagulation regimens as we move through this. And always consider these other cofactors that may drive some of our decisions, not only what drug we use, but how we may actually measure the effects and use the other pieces of information to really look at the global situation of the patient and fit our pieces into it accordingly so the whole management plan is really succinctly thought out and optimized for the patient. Keep in mind that there are joint commission elements of performance with the management of all patients receiving antithrombotic therapies, and we need to be cognizant of those in this process, and uh, those are things the centers are expected to follow. They expand not only within the hospitals, but they also extend outside of the institutions. But when you look at thrombosis and COVID-19, the real incidence, as I mentioned, is unclear. We do look at both arterial and venous thrombosis. Obviously, most of the reported cases are on the venous side. But I think we're missing arterial thrombosis because we're not necessarily tagging it as easily as we do. But many of the randomized controlled trial measured both of these. And it seems like in the ICU, the risk is highest, running anywhere from 20 to 30 or even higher percentages in some of the more recent trials, to the general floor patient being lower, around 10% or low, and and it's low post-discharge, but yet it's always frustrating to hear the story of someone who went through COVID, mechanical ventilation and everything, got discharged, and then a week or two later, which happened actually an acquaintance of mine, had a massive PE and died. They were healthy, young, otherwise they just had COVID and they're gone from a massive PE. So the incidence is low, but it's still something that's out there. And we're not really clearly aware of how to manage those because it's rare and what to do, but uh, that is something that's still a reality. But it is definitely a higher risk in patients who have ARDS or requiring mechanical ventilation. And of course, as I mentioned, with dependence on D-dimer levels and other factors. So when you make decisions to add anticoagulation therapy, obviously we do know that some form of anticoagulation is showing an increase in survival, but the dose is not fully clear and the setting may vary and it also involves bleeding assessments, as we mentioned. They could already have requirements for anticoagulation. Sometimes these requirements may alter our approach and we may use higher levels of anticoagulation if it's a thrombotic concern and we may end up being more conservative if there's significant bleeding related issues that we have have to pay attention to and finding that balance. And sometimes in the critically ill patient, it's a moment-to-moment decision that we have to make as the story plays itself out. I don't have a real preference for using the DOAX, although we have the Magellan trial looking at rivaroxaban, for example, in uh, prophylaxis. But there is some interactions that we have to deal with with the antiviral therapy. There are some even with warfarin, but it is probably more prevalent amongst the DOAX and having a full understanding is something we still don't have clarity on. And also, a lot of these patients it's hard for them to take PO medications. So for me, just personally in practice, I tend to stick with drugs like anoxaparin or heparin because they also have some possibly anti-inflammatory properties that may be beneficial as well. 
uh, nevertheless, it depends on the institution, but that's just my take on it. Uh, I'm fine with their use in the post-discharge era, but not for the initial part where especially the cytokine storm is progressing and they could get worse, it could get in the ICU and we have to use other therapies. When you deal with mechanical valve patients or LVAD patients, obviously I think a low molecular heparin would be the preferred approach. Although again, these are just my thoughts and experiences in managing these patients. It's still something to consider when we're doing the initial therapies. That's kind of where I would lean with the information we have at this time. Now, when you look at laboratory monitoring, the guidelines are inconsistent. When you look at all the different societies that have put out guidelines relative to the thrombosis management of COVID. But one of the consistent things is obviously you should be doing CBCs, a prothrombin time or an INR. An INR is basically based on the prothrombin time, D-dimer and a fibrinogen. I think it's important to do serial D-dimers to look at where things are progressing with these and see if there's any parts of these assays that are being messed up by COVID before you start an agent that you're going to monitor using them. CBCs and such, you want to repeat every two days or three days or so. But keep in mind that COVID has been associated with increased INRs, APTs, factor 8s, and fibrinogen levels. It's important to be judicious when you use your labs and try to coordinate everything so you minimize the number of entries into the room for these patients and also blood draws and any potential anemias that could be the result of a lot of blood draws. So you, you obviously want to do everything in coordination, the doses, the labs, and everything, so you really can minimize the use of protective gowns and stuff, especially in the past. We did have a shortage in them. Not a problem now, but you never know how things change with supply chains and such. So it's always prudent to be uh, sensitive to this issue as well. When you're measuring the anticoagulation in COVID, again, the APTT can be elevated. It might be effective uh, increasing antiphospholipids, fibrinogen or factor eight levels. These can obviously mess up your measurement if you're using the APTT. So the first thing is doing a baseline to see if it's present in the first place. And if it is, you need to maybe modify your ranges or how you're going to manage it accordingly. Sometimes you may want to think more along the anti-10A level because it's not as influenced by the cytokine storm and such over the APTT, and this is what several societies have recommended. Again, you want to get a good baseline measurement, and I never wait for the results to initiate the infusion. I would target the typical range of these patients, but sometimes if you have a, a very large thrombotic burden in your patient, and this I, in practice lean to the upper part of that range if possible to keep them there. But these patients also can have high T-bilirubins. And when they get above four or five, that actually can mess up the anti-10A where it doesn't move. It just stays low. And so if you're seeing uh, use of anti-10A and the, you're giving heparin, you're giving larger amounts and nothing's happening, one of the tricks I do is if we bolus it is I measure the anti-10A about 10 or 15 minutes into the bolus. And if there's no response even then, I know no matter how high I go up on that heparin, I may not get the response I want on the anti-10A. So that's something to keep in mind because there are a lot of patients who are severely sick with COVID that the liver starts shutting down and you see these high T-bilies. And also if they're on a DOEC before, and this is where the challenge comes, is that the DOECs can falsely elevate the baseline anti-10A levels. And literature in a couple papers has shown that this is probably up to 72 hours post the dose. Uh, so it's something to keep in mind when you're looking at these baseline levels to measure and know where you're starting from. Tags have been explored a little bit. This is a process in which they take a, a sample of blood, they put it on a cup, and they rotate the cup or rotate a pin around a cup, and they look at how long it takes for a clot to form on the pin. And so they look at these R times and K values and intensity angles, and also at the end when it starts showing that the curves 
we converge together to the lysis period. But all these so far have shown some sort of sense of hypercoagulability on these different indices that are measured in a tag. But again, this is a global process. It takes several hours to run unless you have a rapid tag. And there's a lot of different methods and fibrinogen can influence results. And we're not really sure how much when you look at the endothelium is also contributing to this process. So really using tags as a standard of care for monitoring, I don't think it's ready for prime time, but yet it does give us an idea of the big picture of what might be going on with our patient. Because sometimes we have to think beyond COVID and to get a better understanding of what really is unfolding. So here's a self-reflection, just something that there's no like perfect yes or no answer, but uh, let's look at a patient who's 80 kilograms in the ICU with COVID on mechanical ventilation, and the D-dimers are greater than four times the upper limit of normal with a creatinine clearance of 40. So just think to yourself, what prophylactic anticoagulation regimen would you choose? Would you put this patient on 40 milligrams of anoxaparin subcutaneously twice a day? Would you use 60 milligrams twice a day? Or would you use 40 milligrams just once a day? Or would you use heparin 5,000 subcutaneously three times a day? And this is for prophylactic anticoagulation. So what typically has been your practice in these situations and something to sort out? Is the creatinine clearance something that you might want to modify your regimen? Or do you want to keep it standard? How often do you want the nurse to come in the room? But what if you can't use one agent and you have to use the others? These are all things that you might want to consider in making your management decisions. Let's look at it in intensive care unit. Okay. Now we're dealing with poor subcutaneous absorption, sometimes especially when they're on presser agents or things that might affect the bioavailability. We sometimes use infraction heparin infusion, especially if they're on other therapies like ECMO and stuff, because we're not only looking at the management of the COVID, we're also dealing with circuits. What target anti-10A values should we use? Well, we you know data from what we want to do in non-COVID populations, but in the COVID populations, is this different? This is unclear. What are our bleeding risks and what's the impact of severe renal impairment or the patient who's very obese? So these are other things we have to keep in mind. Verkhaus triad and COVID provides a hypercoagulable condition, but what other conditions might be involved in making our decision? Again, we try to decrease the amount of entries into the room, coordinate everything. And just a reminder with low molecular heparins that based on the, and typically use a cough gall on total body weight, that's how the data was derived, not using the MDRD equation or the EGFR. If you get down to how this truly was developed, generally if your creatinine clearance is between 30 and 60, you have some room to maybe decrease your dose a little bit if you're worried about especially bleeding in your patient. But again, sometimes when they have these other presents like vasoconstrictors, bioavailability may go down. And then there is data using anoxaparin and hemodialysis that we reported in these kind of situations uh, that involve critically ill patients as well as others. And we're using a lower dose. And if that's the only option, there's some data. But I will also remind you that this is not tested in the COVID populations. But uh, it's something we can consider when we're up against the wall making decisions. So when you're dealing with VTE in these patients that are critically ill, you want to obviously, with a clot, go to therapeutic dose anticoagulation unless there's contraindications to do so. But it's important to try to confirm the DVT. And if the clinical suspicion is high and you don't do diagnostic testing or it's unavailable or unfeasible, which is one of the challenges we've had with COVID, then we might use scoring methods as a means to decide whether they truly had an event or not. It's important to document this so that people understand why the patient might be on therapeutic anticoagulation and what was driving that decision. 
We have data using parenteral direct thrombin inhibitors. It is kind of unclear. Some of it's uh, recently in the ECMO population out of the University of Kentucky, but there's a possible benefit. It's just not sure if it's ready for prime time with any sort of comparison to other therapies. And there is a thought that there may be, again, some anti-inflammatory properties to these drugs. But I don't think anybody's recommending it as, as the go-to agent as of yet. Maybe in some of the ECMO populations, as institutions are doing that. I surely have seen that in my practice, but it's something to consider. If they have a clot, obviously you're going to treat them for at least three months. Uh, initially, we typically we use heparin and low molecular heparin, especially when they're in the pro-inflammatory state. But long-term, you can look at whatever is going to be the best option for the patient, whether it's a DOAC or warfarin therapy. So when you do anoxaparin, for example, it's one milligram per kilogram every 12 hours. If you use daltaparin in your hospital, okay, you know, it's just whatever you have for your workhorse in your hospital is what you should probably keep with and use. If you use IV heparin, consider bolus. You target, as I mentioned, these antitenase four to six hours. If you use a large bolus, I would wait six hours to really get a good idea because of four hours, the bolus plus the infusion is still messing up your numbers and you may underdose the patient subsequently. But the APTT may be biased by the COVID, so it's keeping in mind, and that's what it's important to do, these baseline levels. If there's a pulmonary embolism with RV strain, and this would be what we call like a massive or submassive pulmonary embolism, there are actually guidance from the PERT initiative for COVID and how you do this. So you want to consider that. And I'm not going to go into detail with it, but it's out there. And again, it's important to check the fibrinogen because in the very latent stage of COVID, the fibrinogen levels can decline. When you're doing thrombolysis, it may be not a routine recommendation currently. There is some obviously use for catheter clearance if necessary. And there's also, you know, using it with, as I mentioned, the PERT initiatives. Uh, sometimes they might actually use catheter-directed thrombolysis. It depends on the institution and how the vascular intensivists are comfortable in doing this, but using ECOS catheters and such could be options. I'm not going to say you don't, but there's just not a lot of data saying how we approach this. But if it's a severe clot that needs to be removed and they really don't want to do a surgical option, they may opt for this option. You should be prepared on how to manage this if you do these in your facility, should they want to do it in a COVID patient, and think ahead and not wait till the event happens before you start deciding, how am I going to do this? And as I mentioned, late stages of COVID-19, you may have low fibrinogen levels, which can affect your therapies. Now, when, let's look at what we do know in some of the trials I kind of picked out. You know, Initially, when we looked at the ICU in a trial that looked at 184 patients, almost 50% primarily had PEs and thromboembolisms. Okay, so they all received thromboprophylaxis, and there was a linear increasing pattern observed in this. Then we ran into, there was a meta-analysis that looked at combined groups of, of trials out there, and the VT rate was a little lower, 31%, but it seemed to be higher with age, and obviously PEs are much higher in patients who are obese, so it's always another thing you want to consider, especially in your morbidly obese patients. And also note that bioavailability of your subconjections may go down in obesity as well. In the INSPIRATION trial, well, this one looked at an intermediate dose that was done as anoxaparin, one milligram per kilogram daily, and they compared it to a standard dose of prophylaxis, and uh, they found really no difference between these strategies. So this is kind of setting up the idea that in subsequent trials, and we'll get into the HEP-COVID trial, they actually combined these groups together and compared it to the treatment dose. So we really don't have clear data, although there's been some subjective thoughts that maybe the intermediate regimen may be a little bit better, but we really don't have any sort of clear guidance from clinical trials uh, stating that. 
Then the New England Journal of Medicine published a combined group of four trials, and they found that if you use treatment doses, the thromboembolism rates were lower than usual care, but the mean dimer in these were not that high. And this is what's important when you look at these trials, because as I mentioned earlier, D-dimers may have an influence on the risk for thromboembolism. With this trial, though, they found no difference in survival at discharge, but major bleeding was much higher in the treatment group. Of course, you have to get down to when people define major bleeding. So let's look at this in the HEP-COVID trial, which recently got published in JAMA in early October. And here, patients on treatment doses had a 29% of thrombosis versus standard doses lower. These patients, to get in the trial, had to have D-dimers greater than four times the upper limit of normal. But in this trial, when you look at the paper itself, there is no differences between the strategies in the ICU, and most of the benefit was realized in the patients on the floor. Similar to the combined a New England Journal article, they found that really treatment doses had some benefit in the floor patients, but it wasn't really necessarily impacting patients in the intensive care unit. And then there's this other trial looking at 176 patients where they looked at intermediate versus standard dose. And here again, the intermediate dose was a little bit higher in the thromboembolism, but when you look at mortality as a heart outcome, the intermediate dose had a lower mortality than patients on the standard dose. The, interesting enough, those in the intermediate dose had a slightly lower D-dimer than those in the standard doses. So it's also important to really look into the detail to understand these trials. But we're kind of left with additional trials coming out. So this is something that will be showing itself over the short period of time to come. And, but right now, a lot of people are leaning more towards really not using treatment doses of anticoagulation in the critically ill patient. But again, I'm always cautious that we have to look at such a diverse group. The ICU is a location and doesn't necessarily define a patient. And it's important to consider your patient in making these decisions because there are times that other things may influence your decision to go to a higher dose in your patient. And surely I have done that when my D-dimers have keep climbing. We're worried more about thromboembolism and bleeding, and we make an empiric decision as a multidisciplinary group to decide what is the best treatment at this time for this patient. So I don't know if you can say fully, don't use treatment doses in the ICU for prophylaxis. However, the data in randomized controlled trial and those patients that could be enrolled in the trial is not highly supportive of that practice. So you must have other extending reasons to make these kind of decisions. So again, there's special populations that can influence these decisions. And it's a challenge to put all these ICU patients into one strategy. When we have these patients, you know, ECMO is excluded from the trial. Of course, there's the plus and minus of how you anticoagulate. Even an ECMO circuit as circuits are changing. They're shorter. The requirements for anticoagulation are changing as the technology changes. So this is really a moving target for us in making these decisions. So when you deal with ECLS, again, we're anticoagulating the circuit. Most of these patients are going to be in VV ECMO, but I have had patients on VA ECMO as well. And I've actually had patients with pillow devices because their hearts failed so bad, although they weren't necessarily my COVID patients, but there's other things that are happening that can affect our decisions on how to anticoagulate these patients. And VV ECMO can go on for long periods of time. In fact, I've seen some really bizarre bleeding in the lower throat region in these patients after prolonged weeks on these regimens. And finally, we have to go in and do arterectomies or such to stop the bleeding because there's so much profuse bleeding that they're basically almost drowning in their blood. Having several of these patients, and I don't know if the others have seen this, but that changes the picture. And we have to look at the management differently because we had to stop the bleeding so we could actually deal with the COVID infection. 
but there's a lot of issues with this. Now, can we use bivalvirudin? Well, there's some case reports in EVVACLS, and this is kind of what they had in these case reports. And then I'll steer you to also a study that was done by a group of pharmacists out of the University of Kentucky that actually looked at bivalvirudin also, and they had pretty good results with it. And so it's important to watch these trends, but these are the ECMO populations. I, at times, had to switch my patients to bivalrudin when we weren't dealing with heparin, and we were successful, but it took the pharmacist paying attention to the details. Again, one of the things when we dealt with the labs, see, with the type T billies, is I used thrombin times as a means to figure out whether they were really high, and I couldn't see it with my labs. So it's always important to keep in mind that the labs may be misleading, and you have to keep on track and look at multiple issues and variables to make your decisions and not just focus on one particular a parameter in making these decisions. But if the antitene is not moving, it's low, and the APTT, it could be high or low, and you don't know what. I use a thrombin time. If the thrombin times are above the scale, then I know that may have too much anticoagulation on board, putting my patient at risk for bleeding. Again, a lot of these trials, when they looked at the bleeding, they're mostly driven by drops in hemoglobin and not necessarily fatal bleeding. So that's one of the considerations when you look at this data is what was bleeding. And even some definitions have tried to get away from the two grams per deciliter drop in hemoglobin is really a bleeding indice that some of the trials are still using because it's the ISTH criteria. And so it's important to understand truly what was the bleeding being driven by. So when you deal with the post-ICU challenges, what do you do when they come out of the ICU? Well, one of the challenges we had is they come out of our ICU, and they're on treatment doses of anoxaparin, and we couldn't figure out why. Did they have a clot? Now I have to put them on three months of anticoagulation. Or did they not, and was it for prophylaxis? Without good documentation, we're in the blind in knowing what to do for these patients. So it's important to consider that when you're using these higher doses to clearly build your picture of why you're doing so and not just on the whim put it on it because you think they're higher risk, especially if you're not doing the testing to look for thromboembolism because of the infection precautions. So this is, uh, I think, one of the challenges we have to face. And then when can we de-escalate anticoagulation? At what point? You know, we're showing that prophylaxis in the ward patients, the non-ICU patients, may have better outcomes than using treatment doses versus using lower doses. But how do we then go about de-escalating this regimen at what time and what place in managing these patients? And you have to think it from the process to the end until anticoagulation reasons have passed in these patients. So let's get back to our self-assessment question. Which statement is true in hospitalized COVID patients? And anti-TNA antibiotics are not preferred. We really don't have a lot of data. There's some experiences with it. But I think we have the challenge, too, if you want to use go to heparin and you want to monitor anti-10A, these agents can possibly mess up those values for a period of time. Because the APTT is elevated, it may not be preferred over anti-10A activity. But again, it depends on what your institution does and what you have set up with your standards of practice. But if you do use the APTT, you have to be cognizant that it could be elevated by the COVID as well. For number three, anoxaparin prophylaxis dose in the ICU should be 40 milligrams subcutaneous daily. I don't know if we established that for all patients. I think it's important to keep in mind to manage the patient. And there's obviously possibly a, a role for intermediate doses, but it not shouldn't always be the case. Number four is really the, the correct answer. There are a lot of independent factors present in COVID patients that can lead to misleading lab results and such that you have to consider in making your decisions. The next self-assessment question is what would not be considered as the best practice? So first of all, all injection and measurements be coordinated to be done in as few times per day as possible. That is a true statement. 
Number three, anticoagulation regimen decisions should assess all risk for thrombosis and bleeding. You're always going to do that when you're using anticoagulation therapy, whether they're with COVID or not. Or number four, when using treatment doses of anoxaparin for prophylaxis, documentation should clearly describe why this dose is chosen. That's important because whoever is going to take your patient when you transfer them out, they need to know what's going on and why decisions are made because this is going to impact their ability to make the best decisions for the patient. But the thing you would not do is make decisions based solely on the randomized clinical trials because a lot of the patients you have in the ICU being such a diverse population may not have been in trials and thus you have to think about these other factors. So again, trials are going to help give us answers, but they're not going to give us all the answers we need and we still need to individualize the patient. So our key takeaways here from my last slide is uh, approaches to anticoagulation management is evolving. We're learning as we go. We're finding out more of how these populations are, but it's important when you look at these trials to dwell into the population. And the New England Journal combined trial had a much lower D-dimer influence than the HEP-COVID trial. And this is possibly a significant difference between these results and the patient study. Management decisions are complex. This is why we need to have a multidisciplinary group, including a pharmacist present, to sort through this and look at the big picture. We piece our key piece in, but it's important we pay attention also to not only what I present here, but the other two presenters as far as how you look at the whole regimen and whole impact, because what if you're using antivirals? How does that affect some of the other therapies we're doing? Are we coordinating that all together? So it's important always to look at the big picture. I think for me in practice, I found that to be the best thing is to look at the big picture first and then sort in all the little variables and make sure I didn't miss something that was critical that was independent of the anticoagulation, but could influence the whole thing with the patient. Sometimes it's what you choose to change or alter. You have to think about all the issues that go around those decisions and what you want to do next. And pharmacists are in a key position to bring the bedside anticoagulation regimen that optimizes outcome. I mean, I would say that actually for both what Heather and Paul presented, we are in a key position to drive a lot of this stuff and make sure that we bring our piece to the pie to the bedside. But I do encourage you all that I have found in the critically ill, you got to know what's going on at the bedside. You can't just do it from afar. It really needs to be something you have your eyes on what's going on and be in real time and not just try to follow the medical record, which can be delayed for up to 24 hours and giving us the information we need. So for a practitioner, I always find that to be the best place to take care of these issues and patients, but also thinking in advance of things that can come down the line and being prepared for that should they occur. Thank you so much for joining us for this special edition podcast on COVID-19. Be sure to follow us at ASHP Official or wherever you listen to your podcast and check out our COVID-19 Resource Center at ashp.org backslash COVID-19 for the most up-to-date developments on COVID-19. Take care and thank you for all that you do.